0: You've just sung in the last verse of that hymn about the great event of Christ's return. The choir sang a wonderful anthem. I thank them for singing that today. That great anthem about the return of Christ. This is a subject that we have before us. You know, you might think it's strange to dwell in the world of earthquakes in Haiti and wars in far places and political headlines and then come to church and hear about the return of Christ and the resurrection body. And some people would say, well, I feel like I'm stepping out of the zone of reality into unreality. I wish I could somehow turn that thinking in your mind. No, when you turn aside from the troubles and the great pains of this world, you're really turning from the temporary reality. And now we look at the permanent reality. Listen to what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 35. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor but raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery— We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This is God's great Word to us. Let us pray for a minute. Father, you put before us things that just seem too far out there challenging. They don't fit in our front page of our newspaper. We ask, O God, for the eyes of your Spirit to see things that are and will be and to rejoice in them, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Great many of you know the name of Johnny Erickson Tedda As a woman who is an artist, a writer, a speaker, and an advocate for the physically disabled. I've never met Johnny, but I've always felt a kind of kinship with her because we're the same age. We graduated from high school the same year. For me, the summer of 67 was a summer of joy. For Johnny, it began that way, but it didn't end that way. When a diving accident caused her to be paralyzed. Below the shoulders, she's a quadriplegic and has been that way. Now she must have passed her 60th birthday, and she spent two-thirds of that lifetime unable to do for herself the most simple daily things that would require the use of a couple fingers. And yet she's a shining witness to the truth of God and a woman well-grounded in the knowledge of Scripture. Her books are Very sound, for the most part, and very worthwhile. I was reading a little bit this week in a book she wrote called Heaven, Your Real Home. Probably because her earthly body doesn't work, Johnny thinks more about her resurrection body than you do. She said in this book, let me quote, somewhere within my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of, of what I will become. Paralysis makes what I am to be in the future all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. A gigantic oak tree, she said, bears no resemblance to a tiny acorn. Right now, I'm just an acorn when it comes to understanding heaven But I can tell you, whatever my acorn shape becomes, in all its power and honor, I'm ready for it. Every Christian should be able to say amen to that. Johnny may appreciate it more than you or I from the standpoint of a wheelchair. But are you ready for the power and honor of the new body God is going to bestow one day. The Scripture says within every Christian who is reborn in Jesus Christ is the prototype for a thrilling resurrection upgrade. No matter what your present thoughts about your body are, whether about ailments, whether about what you regard as shortcomings that your body has, whether weaknesses, perhaps You feel yourself to be disfigured in some way? The Scripture says the final heaven and earth that we have spoken about these last couple weeks is going to see you remade in vigorous bodily splendor. C.S. Lewis preached a famous sermon called The Weight of Glory that's been printed separately as just a sermon by itself. It's well worth looking up. In the sermon, Lewis was developing the idea that we rub shoulders in this world every day with men and women and boys and girls who, as he described it, if we could see right now what they're going to be like in eternity, we'd be utterly amazed. He said if we could see what the Christians will be like, we would want to fall down before them and worship them. If we could see what the non-believers will look like one day, we would probably want to run away from them. In horror. And I'm going to quote a sentence in which he has a a theological error, but it's stated for a literary purpose. Lewis marveled and said, It's a serious thing to live in the society of potential gods and goddesses. I hope you hear his error. We're not going to be gods or goddesses, but what we're going to be is way beyond anything you've ever seen on this earth or imagined. It's possible that I might have some of you confused in the way I've developed these messages in the last few weeks because as we've now come to the Christian future, we're away from the unbeliever's future that we looked at in the fall months, perhaps I should have started right here with the reality of the resurrection body because after all, when we read 1 Thessalonians 4, when Christ shall come, the great thing that's going to happen is the resurrection of believing dead. I didn't start there. I started with the remaking of the cosmos two weeks ago, the events of 2 Peter 3 tells about. Last week, I elaborated a little more on on the final home of righteousness in talking about God at the center of it, the, being the all-consuming reality of eternity. I wanted to set that stage for you, I think. But I come now to that which you might say is really first in the chronology. If we can say there's a, an order of events, perhaps, at Christ's coming, it appears that the resurrection of believers is first. You remember what 1 Thessalonians 4 says? He brings with him those who have died, the souls of the just made perfect. They are the first to be raised. Then those who are yet alive. It's that reality that we want to point to today. And I cannot even begin to hardly scratch the surface in one message. I'm going to look at it some more again next week, so maybe the questions I don't address today may come up next time. I want to step back and look at this great reality of Christians expecting a resurrection body. You know, that's not everybody's idea of eternity. Christianity was greatly influenced by the Greeks and their philosophy, and led by Plato, the main Greek ideal was the separation of the body and soul or spirit. Plato said flesh is a bad thing. Flesh corrupts. Flesh only drags you down. It takes the pure part of you, the the spirit or soul which God made. Now Plato didn't have much of an idea of who or what God was, but he would use the word God and he would say What you need is for your spirit to be liberated from the prison house of flesh so the pure soul can exist before God. And that was the Greek ideal. And that crept into a lot of Christian thinking and made people not think biblically. Because here's the biblical understanding, which is actually quite different. The Bible says, just as Christ is going to redeem our souls and has redeemed our souls at the cross, if, if you have put your trust in Him, you've been ransomed. A wonderful Sunday school class today, we, we went through some of the things that have happened. You've been justified. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled. Christ has done that through His cross. And, and that's what everybody says, oh, salvation. Sure, my soul is saved. But that's a big part of it, but it's not all of it. We saw a couple weeks ago that God is actually redeeming the whole creation. The whole cosmos is going to be remade as a new heaven and new earth is the final home for God's people with God dwelling at the center, with Christ visible before his people. Genesis chapter 2 teaches that we are not just pure spirits, as Plato would want. We are bodies and souls. God created bodies from the dust of the earth like any animal, but then he did something he didn't do for the animal. He breathed his spirit into us. Now, whatever that means precisely, it's telling us that we are something unique. We're not just in the evolutionary chain from animals. We are a special creation of God. We have his image. We have his life in us. We have the ability to respond to God and all the things that his image means. Now, if God is going to save our souls by the cross of Jesus... Don't cut yourself off and think that he's going to provide a halfway redemption and save souls only. He's interested in saving whole persons. He's interested in redeeming our bodies so that in the final day, when he crowns his work of redemption, redeemed bodies are going to be our possession as well. You declared this. I hope you were serious. You do it every time we say the Apostles' Creed. You know how the creed can just kind of come out, something you have memorized, the Lord's Prayer, too. You have to concentrate to think about what you're saying. You say, wait a minute, I didn't say anything about this today. Oh, yes, you did. You said, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Did you know what that was about? Do you know what you're promised in regard to that? Let's begin to look at it a little bit today. Well, first of all, the fact of it. With a monumental argument, actually, verses 12 through 34 in First Corinthians 15 are stressing the fact of Christ's resurrection, and I didn't even read that text. But there's other texts we can use briefly to build the fact. Verses 51 and 52 announce this, We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. That's the return of Christ. The Scripture, in many different ways, gives us this assurance of a fact that bodily resurrection at the return of Christ is the great landmark event of history. Earlier in this service, you heard Philippians three twenty and 21 as an assurance text. It goes right alongside, a great text. Paul, again, writing to a different church. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, you see, it's part of a big program, He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Now, there's so many threads of this, we can't go and trace them all, but just let me suggest a few in the Bible that that predicted this, that caused us to anticipate this. Several months ago, I put some stress on a text way back in Job, one of the oldest books in all of the Scripture. It's not first in the Bible, but it's one of the oldest. The book of Job. Here's this man in the midst of suffering. His own body is suffering. We read about Job scraping the sores on his skin with a sharp-edged tool or something. Wow, was he suffering. But in the midst of what he was going through, Job was given this moment of insight in which he cried out, Job 19.25, I know that my redeemer lives, and that in the end he shall stand upon the earth. And in my flesh, I will see God, I and no other. Utterly remarkable text, like a shaft of sunlight in a dark place. Somehow, Job gave, Job got this understanding that was beyond what his own mind, I think, comprehended. God's Spirit surely gave it to him and made him a mouthpiece of a prophecy. Could he have guessed this meant Jesus Christ? Did he understand anything about the first coming of Christ, let alone the second coming? But he uttered this that so perfectly fits what every believer expects to experience. Some people say the Old Testament, as far as giving us real understanding about the resurrection future, is like a beautifully decorated and furnished room, a large room, maybe as big as this, but but dark. And the only light in this beautiful room is a one-watt bulb. Now, if there was a one-watt bulb at the center of this room and no windows and no other light, you wouldn't be able to see very much. That's a little bit what the Old Testament is like. It It has the furniture that leads to the future day of resurrection, but it's not illuminated very well yet. Daniel chapter 12 has a prediction that you ought to know, where Daniel speaks about a general resurrection to come, saying multitudes will sleep in the dust of death, and they will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. He's talking about a general resurrection. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 only stresses the resurrection of believers, but we, we put all these pieces together and say there is a general resurrection of all persons, But the Bible seems to imply little teaching about the bodies of the unbeliever once they are judged and put away from God's blessing. The concentration is on the believer's resurrection body. Jesus spoke about it. John chapter 5 was one place He said in John 5.24 that there would be a crossing over from death to life. That's what salvation would be. John 5.28, he went on and predicted a time is coming when all who are in the graves will come out, and those who have done well will rise to live, while those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Other New Testament passages speak about Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, Yes, he was raised in a marvelous way. Was it the only person who's ever going to be raised, or is that going to happen again and again, millions-fold? John 14, verse 19, has Jesus promised his followers, because I live, you also will live. Now, we could go on and pile up more texts, but the point to see here is that the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Day was not a one-time flash-in-the-pan event. It was a prototype event, if you will, a working model of a great miracle God is going to do millions of times over at the reappearing of his son. Millions will be transformed and have bodies again and again we hear like, like the body of Christ. So let's take it with those texts and no more at the moment anyway, the fact is that bodily resurrection at Jesus' return is a landmark biblical event well-established. But now we go to this 1 Corinthians text more directly because people want to know about the how of it, the manner of it. Obviously, the Corinthians were curious. They must have forwarded some question that Paul was responding to in verse 35 when he says, someone may ask, how are that he, he knew that the Corinthians had an interest in this topic. It had probably. And spoken to him. that They had talked about it, and they wondered about it. What will I look like? What will I be like? Will I, what, what language will I speak? You know, will I be male or female? Will I be old or young? What will the existence of heaven? People have discussed this all through Christian history. Well, there are many things in this passage, and I'm trying to reduce them to a fairly simple thing, but I've reduced them in this statement, and I hope you might ponder this statement, Or my second point is this. We shall be recognizably the same and yet profoundly different. We will be the same. There will be some measure of sameness about our risen bodies, enough so that personality, whatever that is, and the psychologists will have a field day talking about that one, will survive. Somehow you will know that I am me and I'm not you. That Whatever it is that differentiates us now, not just a different shape or amount of hair or maleness or femaleness, there'll be some continuity about me that will survive. And God is able to do this. I think one of the real proofs of this is the way when we're told that our bodies are going to be like the body of Jesus, we can draw conclusions from what his resurrection body was like. You think about it. Think about how they recognize Jesus after the resurrection, not necessarily right away. In fact, in some cases, they interacted with him a little bit. Well, part of that was who was expecting Jesus, you know? Who was expecting him? But nevertheless, there was enough about him that caused him to be recognized. I think of a key text that I always thought was a remarkable one in the Eastern narratives, Luke 24, 39 has Jesus coming to frightened, doubtful disciples. They don't know what's going on, and he bids them to just look at him. He says, look, look at me. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. It's me, we would say. Touch me, he says, and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, that blows away some people's idea of the resurrection body, flesh and bones. I thought he was just a ghost. No, Jesus denied it. He said, I'm not a ghost. If you want to find out, come, I'll embrace you. You want to examine what that nail did to my wrist or my palm? Come and touch it and look at it. I think, too, of John 20, where Mary Magdalene looked for him in the garden, and there was someone there, and she thought it was a gardener or a worker. Where have they put him? You know, she didn't really look at the fellow when she spoke to him. And, but then he spoke her name, Mary. <laughs> Two syllables. And she turned around full of wonder and said, Lord. She knew him. Peter, the same thing. John 21, out there fishing. Somebody's on the shore, has kindled a campfire, calls out to them, a greeting. Fishermen, don't pay too much attention. Then he tells them what to do with their nets, and Peter looks. I don't know how far away he was, but he looked, and he looked again, and he said, it is the Lord. And he made a fool of himself, jumping out of the boat, wading as fast as he could go to get to the one he loved. You heard it today in Philippians 3.21. Our resurrection bodies will be like His glorious body. We may do some reasoning from what his body was to think what ours will be. What was true of him will be true for us. Now, you know, there's a wonderful application in this, I think. The fact that our resurrection bodies are going to be recognizable, that I'm still going to be me and you're still going to be you, tells me something. It tells me we are not God's mistakes. It tells us that our bodies are not inherently evil, they're not throwaways that God doesn't care about, that however much we may have ruined them in our poor stewardship of the use of them by eating too much or taking the wrong drugs or dissipating ourselves in some other way, however much we might have come and said, I'm I'm just physically a wreck, in fact, my life is a wreck, and I think I must be a throwaway person. God is saying, throw away person, I'm going to redeem your body. I'm going to redeem your personality. You are to me like a Rembrandt painting that, yes, you may have taken black spray painted and covered all over it and totally defaced it, but I know there's a Rembrandt under there. And I know how to clean it up. I know how to restore it so that the glory that's never even been seen in it will be seen your glory, reflecting the glory of Christ, will be seen for the first time. You know, <laughs> when I think of, uh, of a place, of a society that blots out all individuality, I think of one country in this world. There's probably a lot of them, but I think of North Korea. As, as I understand it, you're not allowed to be an individual in North Korea, and uh, people kind of wear the same clothes you're a number I, you you know you're number 742893745 and you memorize that cuz that's who you are you don't have an opinion you don't have a vote you just work keep your head down don't try to surface don't have a face i honestly think there are people who believe heaven is like that you know i'm going to be angel number 74589234 well first of all you're not going to be an angel There's one or two passages that say your life will be like that of the angels, but you're not going to be an angel. You're going to be a glorified human being. Christ didn't die for angels. He died for you. And you're not going to be a number. You're not going to be pressed into a faceless mold. You're going to be a glorious expression of individuality reflecting the praise of your Savior. I can say a lot about how you'll be the same, but recognizability is the first key thing for now. Secondly, though, and real quickly, I've got to stop here, but I've got a lot to say. Hold with me. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us we will be profoundly different. Now, Paul uses the seed and plant analogy for that, and we could take any number of plants, a couple grains of corn. Who would ever think a couple tiny grains of corn would turn into eight or nine foot tall stalks bearing many, many heavy ears of sweet corn. You'd never guess that if you hadn't experienced it. Paul's saying the same. You're looking at seeds, thinking you know what these seeds are going to be. You're looking at earthly bodies, thinking, well, I know what a, a heavenly body will be like. No, you don't. It's as different as that grain of corn is from that huge plant. To bring it all down to earth, he gives us some distinctions, and I'm going to focus on those in verses 42 to 44 here. Four things that our bodies are now and four things that they will be in terms of contrast. First of all, now we are perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. How are we going to be different? Well, four things. Imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Let's just think about those four words for a minute. Imperishable means no death. To perish means to die. Imperishable means unable to die. You ever think about that? Your resurrection body will not die. That means it will not run down either. Your body's been running down from probably about age 21 right now. If you're not 21 yet, that's good news. If you're over 21, it's bad news. And you can probably think of the point in your life when you say, you know, I started to think where I sure used to look better than I was. I felt better than I feel now. I was stronger, and things weren't going wrong. I didn't go to doctors. You live in a perishable body. It's actually very, very weak. If you were trapped under one of those buildings in Haiti, and the building hadn't crushed you, let's say there was a cavity there big enough, but you could not get out and nobody could get to you, you would die in seven days because of no liquids. You need water every week, or you die. You need food every six to eight weeks, or you die. An absolute fast of eight weeks, you're gone. Your body's starting to eat up vital organs by that time. Disease and old age catch up with us all. We are perishable. Who's the largest employer in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania? The hospital, folks. The perishing business. Or the trying to stave off perishing business, let's say. I totally respect healthcare professionals, but isn't it wonderful to be able to say, you doctors and nurses and x ray technicians, you're going to have to find something else to do in heaven because there's no perishing. And the wonderful skills and and things that you can give aren't going to be needed. Imperishable bodies. Then there's this word glorious, the second word that's applied there. That's a hard one. Glory is something we ascribe to God, and we need a lot of time to develop what it is, God and His holiness and uniqueness, His splendor. I think the easiest way to say it is to say that we are going to mirror somehow the glory of God. Matthew 13, has Jesus say, Matthew 13, 43, the righteous will shine forth then as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Do we somehow get incandescent faces? I can only think that what we get are the kind of faces, the face that Moses had when he was in the presence of God. Remember that? He came away from the presence of God and his face glowed. It wasn't Moses' glory. It was God's glory that was seen in this man's face. That's what we'll have, I believe. The third contrast, given his power, as opposed to weakness. I used to be proud as a young husband. My wife would come out with some jar like the pickle jar or something. You know, they put the top on too tight. Dear, can you get this open? Ah, it's my chance to be a man. I grabbed the pickle jar and go, and it popped right open. Here it is, dear. Now you know I'm a man. I can open pickle jars. (laughs) Listen, it's getting to be a challenge that I don't Welcome. Once or twice I haven't been able to do it in the last little while. My power is diminishing in more ways than one. We won't go into that too much. But you know it's true. We get weaker and weaker the longer we live in these bodies. We don't have power anymore. What does power in a resurrection body mean? I'll take us back to a few weeks ago, the last week of December, when we weren't talking about this subject, but I was talking about Isaiah 40. And that ringing promise of God that we all love, when Isaiah said we can mount up with wings like eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Wow. The idea of running a marathon boggles my mind. Some of you in this room can do it and have done it. I'm going to beat you. (laughs) Not now, but in eternity. The power of our new bodies. And then finally, this all-important one in verse 44. That body will be a spiritual body, not a natural one. Be careful here because you can really make a mistake. We think spiritual means non-material or not real, ghost-like, phantom-like. Wait a minute, Jesus said, a ghost does not have flesh and bones like I have. It's not correct to think of a spiritual body meaning less than real. Here's what is suggested by experts and I think the word means. It sounds the best to me. Right now our bodies are natural bodies and they respond to natural impulses and natural temptations and natural controls which usually mean they're out of accord with what God wants. A spiritual body is a body that responds to the Spirit of God in perfect submission. So that a suggestion of God is, yes, Lord, I'll be delighted. Not the bulky, mule-like resistance that our natural bodies show to everything the Spirit of God reveals in the Word of God. A spiritual body is a real body, but it's a body submitted to the lordship of Christ and His Spirit. Well, there's so much we could say, and I'm going to go into it more next time, Lord willing. You should be able to see it's impossible for our present flesh and blood to inherit this kind of a body. There has to be a radical change, and that's what Christ has promised. Not a change taking place in a process, but an instantaneous twinkling of an eye change. Remarkable that He used that expression. Just let me speak to you personally for a minute, because there may be somebody here who's thinking, well, I'm not really sure about all this. Sounds very unreal, very spacey. I'm not sure whether one of those bodies is destined for me or not. I want to speak to you if you're a person who feels you have messed up so badly in your stewardship of this life and this body, that you'd say, I've made a wreck of it. God can't recover anything. He can't do anything with me. Maybe you're exactly like Paul in Romans 7 when Paul cried out near the end of that chapter, his famous wail, who will rescue me from this body of death? And you remember he answered his own question? Thanks be to God. He gives the victory. I can't rescue myself. You can know for a certainty that God will have a bodily resurrection for you. The way you can know that is if he's begun it today. Because everyone in whom it has already begun can know that it will be completed. Right after he called out that question, who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul, in a a mood of assurance, spoke a paragraph later in Romans 8.11. And there he said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. If Christ has given you a new birth by grace through faith in him, if he's working in you that sanctifying process, and you positionally are already in Christ justified, positionally you are perfect, positionally you are a citizen of his kingdom, then Philippians 1 says God will faithfully carry this thing out until the day of Christ. He will finish it because he started it. And getting an indescribable new body then is only the last crowning reward for every Christian. It's the crown of God's work of redemption. We shall be like him. When we see him as he is, can you imagine that today? No, you can't. I can't. But I believe this is our future. And if God has begun to change you from the inside out, I pray that he will build you up in a secure hope of the day when his own glory will be perfectly revealed in you and me. Our Father, we need this hope We dwell so much on tawdry things. We are so consumed about matters of the body and materialism and consumerism and sexuality and all the things of this world. We think that this is the real world. What a lie. Put our focus on the real world so that we could live in this temporary one for your honor, for Jesus' sake. Amen.